Ms. Grace Martino. Welcome, ma'am. Give Dr. Robert Hughes a great big hand. Brother, so good to see you, ma'am. And this is Dr. Graham. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Yep. She's a hugger. She, she's a hugger. She's a hugger. All right. We're going to start today. You all might have your seat. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to somebody earlier this week. I was telling them about the panel and what it is that we're going to be talking about. And they said, so, so what part of the worship experience are you going to do um, this panel in? I said, this is the main thing. I said, oh. And I said, we're not your mama's church. I, th I think that God can move and God speaks in so many different beautiful ways. And, and that's, that's what today's about. All right, so here's how we're going to start. We're going to start on the very end here. If you please just give us a couple of lines about who you are, your name, uh, what is it you do. Um, we know you're young. If you want to tell us your age, you can. You don't have to. But, but please, we'll just kind of walk the mic down um, as, as you finish. Mm -hmm. Sure. Hi, my name is Grace Martino. I come from the island of Puerto Rico. Um, and I moved to the States when I was four when my, yes, nice, yeah. Um, I moved to the States when I was four um, when my dad received um, a call to ministry in Connecticut. So I lived there for a while, went to school up in Boston, studied urban ministry and sociology. And now I live here in Decatur, Georgia, um, working with Cooperative Baptist Fellowship as a ministries assistant. Shout out to Natasha, she works with me. And um, other than that, you should know that I love the Lord above all things, um, and his Father and the Holy Spirit. So, amen. Welcome, Grace. Yes. Good morning. My name is Rob Hughes, and I want to thank you for having us here today. Uh, thank my wife for being here, and my sister and nephew. Uh, they're here in the audience, and also the Shepherd family. Uh, it just makes me feel like I'm already at home. And I am originally from the Cleveland, Ohio area. Uh, been here in Atlanta now for going on 18 years. Uh, what brought me to Atlanta was seminary uh, through the Interdenominational Theological Center. And my ministry focus uh, has been uh, working specifically with youth and young adult ministries, as well as uh, the focus areas of ethics, theology, and public policy. My man, amen. Sharp brother, sharp brother. Dr. Graham Walker. Yes, I'm Dr. Graham Walker. I, uh, I, I have an interesting history. At 10 years old, my parents took me out of the United States and took me to Singapore. And I grew up there and then came back to the United States and went to Florida State University. Um, yeah, yes. thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Um, I teach theology at the McAfee School of Theology of Mercer University, uh, CBF related and Alliance of Baptist background. That's where I am. And um, yeah, and so I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you all for the invitation. Yeah. Um, let me just set expectations. We're going to try to hold this thing to about 45, 50 minutes so that we can get uh, just a few moments of, of, of Q&A or, or statements. Uh, and if, if there's something that you want to ask, a question that becomes burning, just, just jot it down. Um, but let me ask you all in just a sentence or two, why would you think that today is important? Why should this conversation um, be had. Why? What made you say yes? Whomever starts first. <laughs> well, I'll start off. Uh, what made me say yes was two things. Uh, one, that you were willing to have this courageous conversation. And two, the fact that you found it important enough that we would have it as part of our morning worship service. And so often, uh, we just don't have space uh, that's intentional and created to be able to have this type of dialogue, which leads to transformation. And so uh, when you extended the opportunity to join you, uh, it was an immediate yes. Awesome, good. Well, I'll go next. Um, so I was called and I said, um, first Christian um, called me, and Christian is a pastor of the faith community. 
um, and actually a McAfee grad. And so he called me and said, there's this opportunity um, with Pastor Williams, and he's um, asking for someone that's of Latino descent. And I said, yeah, I'm Latina. I could do that. <laughs> um, and then quickly, after I said yes, I was like, what do I know, right? Um, but I know the Lord has equipped me not only with experiences, but with education. And I think we have to have these conversations in the church, because if not in the church, then where? Um, and if we have the wrong mindset, if we go at it with um, power dynamics, if we go at it with, with anger, um, we kind of shift the conversation to a direction that it's not supposed to be at. So I'm super happy that you guys are having this conversation here in this setting um, and with Jesus Christ as the center of that. Amen. Doc, before you answer, let me just say I mentioned on last Sunday that um, the conversation is happening in the world. It's happening on CNN, HLN, WSB TV. It's, it's happening everywhere. The church just isn't sitting at the table. And if we are sitting at the table, some of what we say is being chomped off into sound bites. And here's, here's my philosophy. I, if we can become empowered and all right, you know, anytime you, you start talking about race relations, it just kind of makes you clench up. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Some, some of y'all clenching now, right? <laughs> you, get, you get uncomfortable because to discuss differences isn't always popular but then it doesn't always feel good. So thank you for recognizing that. I think the church needs to be having this conversation. Sir, why? Yeah, I mean, the past two years have been tough on all of us. Um, they've been really rough, and it's been very painful. Around the uh, table with relatives, it's been, it's been hard. Um, haven't been able to talk, yet in the church, when we're buried with him into death, so also we rise with him in newness of life, we come to a kind of a water, baptismal water is thicker than blood. And I feel like this is where we can first have a conversation that we can take back to our blood relatives and say, let's open it up because we talked about it together in the body of Christ. So that's a, that's a good transition into our next question because our president, our current president, has been very polarizing and um, there, okay. There are some moans already regarding just the name President Trump. It, it creates a very divisive response. What, according to your different nationalities, why do you think that's the case? What is it that's happening um, as a result of our current president being in office? What's happening amongst your, your nationalities? <laughs> Please let me go last. Grace, Grace, go ahead. I think, I think for the Latino population, it's, it's been, te lo dije, which means I told you, you know? Um, the, I think the rug kind of, you know, you, you upturn the rug and you see the cockroaches, the spiders, the really scary stuff that has been there for a while now, right? That we said because we had a black president, it no longer happened, right? Um, and I think, Hold on, slow down. Say that again. Yeah. Because we had a black president, what? No, racism no longer exists in America. Um, and I think that was the notion, that was the idea. We're turning a page and a leaf. And I think something that when we realized is when um, someone that was as great as Obama or someone that was a black president came to power, there also comes other powers that become stirring. And I think that's what happened around um, the Trump era was people started stirring, right? Um, and I think that stirring became what is now the president. I think I remember election night. I couldn't believe it. I was in disbelief. I think I sat there. I was like, you know, Florida came in and I was like, oh, what is happening, right? Um, and I think among the Latino population, um, I think for a long time we were saying maybe this is the land of opportunity. This is the land for us. And now we're looking back and saying, is this really the place we want to be at? Although it is still the site for many of us. Um, we are scared, um, not only just because of our race, but because our lives are at stake. Um, as we know, literal lives are at stake. Uh, I need some help. Are you saying, it's just for me, maybe they get it. Are you saying that what we're seeing now is because of the current president? Or are you saying that it's always been there and because of the current president we're seeing it? 
Yeah, it's always been there. It's, I think it's been um, conversations that have been around tables, right? Um, behind closed doors with families, um, with the little jokes in the locker rooms or the little jokes at, at the clubs or the little jokes um, with your friends in college, right? There were conversations that were being had. Um, and now that it emboldened, I think Trump emboldened those people. I'll, I'll never forget the day after the election, uh, my friends were calling me saying, you know, um, I was walking to, this literally happened in my college, I was walking to, was walking to class and someone like yelled out the window, this is Trump's America, get the ends out. Mm. Um, and just story after story, um, especially even within the Latino population really has been the build the wall, um, really has been to get out, right? Um, and so I think it's just emboldened power. I think it's saying, um, giving them kind of the power to say, you can say what you want. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have that. We're going to talk about the N-word here in just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think there was a couple responses, um, you know, throughout the African-American community, particularly taking it back to Election Day. Um, I think there was a, a, a strong expectation and, and a desire to see and realize the first female president. And so because of the, the feeling uh, that many African-Americans experienced in this nation uh, during the Obama administration, uh, that the, not only the position of the president was filled by a man of color, but he opened the entire administration. He, he, he unfolded what was beyond the White House administration. So we were able to see how federal government operated and how using government allowed to empower people. And so using those channels and those doors invited people into spaces that they had never been before. I remember that uh, the White House uh, made available visitations uh, to anyone. Uh, that would want to come and you could sign up and you could go and you could spend time at the White House and you could touch it and feel it and it became tangible and real. And the past two years, those feelings, I believe, are no longer there. It feels that those doors have closed. Uh, it feels that what we were learning or what we had access to all of a sudden changed and shifted. And so it reminded us, or I'll say it reminded me, that when you get a victory, that that can change things beyond just over the course of four years. It happened so immediately that I think it caught people off guard. And now even today, we're raising the question of, of how could someone call for a national emergency? How, how do these powers really work within the, the presidential seat? And when we believe that we have this balance of powers between the judicial and the legislative and the executive branches, and, and yet when we saw the Obama administration receive all the pushback from the very things that they were trying to do, and, and it seemed like nothing could be accomplished, but yet there's nothing that we can do to stop this current administration from doing very, um, just what I believe are destructive things, intentionally destructive things to people that cause real harm, real danger, and ultimately death. Yeah. All right, good, good point, some, some, some good points. We automatically switch to politics. Whenever we start talking about race, we can automatically switch to, okay, the Democrats, the Republicans, you know. That's, that's clear. I guess I kind of have two questions. I would challenge, I challenge us all to synthesize current administration, past administration. There was one I was gonna ask you, so have you ever seen or do you remember or recall um, under other administrations the, the, the tension where it's not accessible? Or, I, I know President Obama um, and First Lady Michelle, they were, they were, they seemed like, you know, they could be your friends. <laughs> um, and it didn't matter what color you were, and that there was this open feeling 
you know, that we, that we connected with. Um, but, but specifically, how does your Christianity, and Doc, you know, I'm kind of setting you up a little bit for the whole theology piece. How does your theology affect your position, your stance? Um, as you're looking at current administration, how, 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 do we, how do we trump? Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't, okay. okay, how do we, how do we rise above the divisive political stuff as kingdom citizens? And before we go to, go, before we go to Doc, the other Doc, I'm just, just curious as to you as an African-American man, um, how, how do you do that? Well, the, it, it, it takes, the first question would be, how can I rise above it? You know, can I rise above it? It's, it's questions that we ask internally, and it begins to, are, are you asking the question from your individual standpoint? Uh, what, can, what can I do? Um, and in the African-American community, for, for a long time, we had a tradition of seeing ourselves as community. And so the question then say, well, what can we do to rise up? And then the questions become, well, from a theological standpoint, I'm reminded through my faith traditions of the things that God has already brought us through and delivered us from. And so understanding that we are on a continuum and reminding myself personally that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of a love and of a sound mind and reminding myself that God has plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans for a hope in the future those beliefs serve as the foundation, the solid rock. And this will probably be addressed in another question, but it's important that we as a nation continue to make sure that our foundation is on solid rock and not on sand. Um, I, I want to point something out. He said, as a nation, as a group of people, what we've gone through. All right, so for all of us, I don't want you to just, you see, I don't want you to miss that point because that means something. African-Americans, black folk, we have an, an anger, we have a response because of what we have gone through that identifies very strongly with the Israelites being in bondage in Egypt. And so now as we bring that currently, we start renaming Pharaoh, putting a new face on Pharaoh, and identifying with our recent history from scripture. All right, so I think that's really important for non-African Americans to hear. And the reason why is because that will explain why you get some of the anger moments because that stuff isn't talked about. We develop a theology about it. Black theology, James Cone, the father of black theology. But, but there's something else that's there. So we look at what's happening, the injustices that are there, and then we start talking about we got a promised land coming. So, so when, when, when non-African Americans hear that, I, I want you to take a look as we're listening, and maybe that'll answer some of your questions. And then as African Americans, we have to understand why we feel the way that we do. When we look at Trump with such disdain, when we, when we get aggravated or bothered, you, you've got to know where the pain is coming from. You've got to understand what has been taken from you, what you've been kept from, opportunities that were not there, no honor that's been given. But here's one question. Do we ignore that? Do we get a pass for that? Not to answer that question, Doc. Oh, okay, so. <laughs> what a setup, right? Well, let's think about it. 
17th century, 246 years of slavery. That's the black history in this country, on this continent. Let's think about it. 89 years of segregation. After that, let's think about it. 63 years past segregation, we finally get to our first African-American president. And it just seemed as if a beautiful moment had taken place in the history of this country. In fact, in the history of the world, because you're looking at a people who have been enslaved psychologically, sociologically, every way, shape, and form, economically, oh my goodness, there it is. And we get to this grand moment. And then we get the pushback of pushbacks. And, and it, it, it wrenches the heart. It tears the families apart. There, there are white families having major battles about this in their family. They're not speaking to each other anymore at Thanksgiving and Christmas. No, I'm not coming. All of that kind of stuff. It's happening now. And people who thought they were unified in the body of Christ will have nothing to do with each other anymore because of this issue and what's gone in the last two years. You're seeing it separate out as they try and come to terms with what is our Christianity all about? Is it preserving what is or is it reaching for a higher ground? Is it leveling mountains and raising valleys? What is our Christianity all about? And that's the story that you're, you're not hearing from those families like ours who are fighting it out. It's in the trenches right now, and that's the way it's going. Um, I will say this. I'm seeing signs that there's a grand disappointment with their backlash, that they, are, they seem to be upset. Now, there's no doubt that there will always be that surd or that extra that's there, that basic just doesn't budge. But I am seeing for Christians a sense of embarrassment, a sense of what have we done, oh my goodness. And not because they took an active role, but because they took a bystander role. They sat there and watched it happen, said nothing to their friends who, who went ahead and did it. And that's, what is the, that's what's the killer. That's what's the killer right there. The silence that let it happen is, well, it's not me. It doesn't affect me. No, it affects a huge percentage of the population. That's where things are starting to change. Now, the resentment and hurt that is felt, the fact that you have the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's face is white, makes total sense. If you're a biblical people and you're seeking liberation, then James Cone makes sense. William R. Jones, my professor at Florida State, Africa, first African-American president of the um, American Philosophical Association, said this. He wrote it in his book, is, is God a white racist? Because that's what it seems, that the way in which you have turned and you have made God speak to us. It's a, a powerful, powerful statement. So, yeah, there are shifts coming. And the theology is raising the valley, lowering the mountain, and uh, can we have that kind of transition? I think so. I think we are, though, feeling the pushback of those who feel frightened, intimidated, and let's not, let's not kid ourselves. The person in office now knows how to manipulate resentment and fears. He's an expert at that. If you look in your Bibles and you look in Greek history, they'll talk about a term called thumia. Thumia means dignity, a sense of respect. Everybody wants dignity and respect for who you are, not by the color of your skin, but by the character of your person. That's what you want. But you can't get to that if, if somebody else is keeping you down and doesn't acknowledge or recognize that. It has to be acknowledged outside. So isothumia is, means that we individually want that. But somebody who has a megalothumia, by that I mean they want to show they are superior to everyone else, they will use the pain of others to build themselves the power. And that's how politics can work, and it's dangerous. 
So all of those folks in the Rust Belt and other places who saw their jobs lost to neoliberal globalization and all that kind of stuff, they now feel like they've been stolen from us. Here's a guy who steps in and says, I can, I can work that. I can work that. I can divide this country and I can work it. And that's what he's done. We have to be better than that. Christians need to give respect, respect is due, and more so than that, they need to learn to love. And this event today is a, is a really good place to begin, to show love for each other. Amen. Before we transition to the next question, I, I don't want us to leave this moment or this, this question, this segment, thinking, well, we just have to make it through two more years because we're King's kids, okay? And I think right now, I was, we, we can't start praying for the next president on election night. But it is time for us, we should have been praying for the next president when, uh, when he was elected. But we should be calling in a man or woman who thinks the things of God, who will, who will do the things of God. So it's, I don't want us to feel like, well, we just have to endure because the word of God trumps Trump and anybody else. All right. Here's, here's something that I'm very passionate about, and Dr. Hughes, I'd like to start with you, and that is the N-word. And um, it's a word that bothers me, but then I, I have associates who think that it's a term of endearment. Where should we, where should we stand as African-Americans on the N-word? I believe we should stand in opposition of it because it does not dignify any reference to a child of God or any creation of God. And I believe that uh, using that word just does several things. Uh, one thing that it does is continue psychological damage. Um, to be able to use the N-word, it's done, in my opinion, not as a term of endearment. Uh, it's done as a way to objectify a human being. Amongst, so if you have another brother come up to you, what's up, ma? And you would, your response would be, don't call me that. Your response would be, what? My response would be, we got to grow. Don't call me that. No. And, you know, I would talk with them and share with them why. And so I know that even within the African-American community, you get different positions. But I think you're going to get different positions because I think it's about maturity. And I think when people understand that um, the N-word does not put our community at large in the strongest position to compete locally and globally, then I think it's those types of things that allow for individuals to make that change. And just whether it's the N-word or using curse words or uh, calling someone any derogatory term outside of their name, and, and using the power of words to lift up and to identify just who they are and, and speak power into the lives of individuals, then when people grow in that level of, as we were talking, well, not we, but as I know the church has been speaking of woke church, it's, it's that type of consciousness and awareness that we understand that, yes, our words do have power. The challenge with that is that within our economic system and within certain sectors and industries, the use of that word has allowed for people to amass economic power. Right. And so using that word works for individuals that realize financial benefit for it. The challenge in that is that it sells everybody else out. Mm -hmm. And so 
now you use these words in your movies, in your songs, in all types of media, and you may get paid by that, but now the damage is done, and so you know, now you want to do a, a call, call a church and, and do a, a Thanksgiving drive or a Christmas giveaway or something along those lines using the resources that you gain by using those words. And um, I think we have to call challenge to that. And, you know, it's not new, uh, but it's something that we continue to have to put forward as leaders to, to call people into accountability for growth. Dr. Graham, thank you, Dr. Hughes. Dr. Graham, as a white man, you hear this word, what's going on internally? Are you confused? Are you, do you get it? Do we get a pass? What's, <laughs> be honest, right? Courageous conversations. But how, how do you feel? All right, I'll give you a history, all right? <laughs> I like you. <laughs> first time I heard a black man say the n-word to another black man was Muhammad Ali in the ring to Frazier. Do you, some of y'all remember that. Some of y'all weren't born yet, but some of y'all remember that. And I remember the white men in the room. What? Did you hear that? Did you hear what he said to him? How come? That's, that started the conversation in the room. And so the way that a white man says that about a black man is completely, completely different than what you hear about the economics of this. My first teaching job was at Simmons College in Louisville, Kentucky, historically African-American school. I was the only white faculty member. I enjoyed it, I loved it, uh, chapel time was great. I got to preach every now and then. <laughs> and I learned how I could preach. <laughs> bring it home, come on now, yeah, bring it home. It helped. I will tell you this though, what I saw on the campus was this one time massive university that had, that had a law school, had a med school, vet school, dental school, and now it was all the way down to just simply the school of theology. That was the only thing left. Why? Because desegregation wiped away all that economics that were there. And then you saw University of Louisville and others come in and take away all those schools, leaving the only thing left of what was an incredible African-American community, economically speaking, was gutted. And so capitalism took over what had been part of the economics of African-American life. So when you say marketing and you're using the term, then we're, what you're really looking at is kind of a, can we get back to at least a piece of that economic piece? Some of you all can relate to what I'm talking about. So we mothballed, you know, three quarters of the university and we kept the school of theology. So I, I do hear that. And then also growing up in a co colonial setting, you also have linguistic ways in which you keep your identity together. And so that is a completely different way for me of understanding it. But it's like you said, it has such a double meaning. To hear that outside, just remember those men in the room when Muhammad Ali says that to Frazier. What are they saying? What are they thinking? They're not hearing it as the economic connection. They're hearing it as the underclass, subordination, putting somebody down. They're hearing it that way. As the fists are flying, see, he's subordinating him and he's using that term, how come? So that's an important lesson. Man, that's huge. I mean, that's... I got a question for you, Grace. But, Doc, do you think, how much do you think your rearing outside of the United States um, has to do with how, what we just heard? A lot. My parents, both of them, voted for Obama twice. Twice. None of their friends did. 
And when they asked their friends, asked them, who are you voting for? And they said, Obama. They got ridiculed, humiliated, talked at, church folks gave them a hard time, and they couldn't understand it. And I said, Dad, you don't understand why your classmates from high school are giving you a hard time for voting for Obama? He said, no, I don't get it. I said, you've lived 30 years with people of color running the entire government. Everything worked wonderful, and now it's not a problem for you. I wish that your friends could have been landed in a place where they lived for 30 years with people of color running the government. They would have a different impression. So, yeah, it makes a huge difference where you are, who you live with, the proximity that you're in. I asked my parents, so why is it before we went to Singapore, we never had any African Americans in our house for a meal or something like that? And they said, they weren't around. I said, oh, but they were just in the service industry and everything else, just not in your circle of friends. So it makes a huge difference. It, it makes a huge difference. The map that you live by really determines how you can vote 30 years later, right? So that's what mom and dad learned. I'm just saying. <laughs> I am right now involved in an active, developing an active relationship with someone of a different color. Um, now, I joke and say I, I, say I grew up uh, bilingual. I, I went to Woodward Academy, Woodward Academy, um, South, South of Atlanta College Park, um, from kindergarten to 12th grade. There were 17 blacks in my graduating class, 185 were in my class. Was that less than 10%? Then I went to, to the University of Georgia. That's pretty white. And then I went to Dallas Seminary. That's real white. But I was getting an African-American history on weekends or exposure. You know, because dad was a preacher. He preached in, we had a black church. He was engaged in national stuff. On a, I mean, so, so I grew up kind of understanding both. So. I grew up bilingual. What up to Shawty? ATL. Peace up. Eight town down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up with that, but also able to understand how white America thought and able to get through some of the ignorance to be able to make a point and be respected. And I, I, what, what I'm saying is my exposure caused me to move in the direction that I did and be viable in more than one culture. Yeah. Now, I, I want to point out something that, that has worked. I was listening to this preacher, coincidentally, this morning. Um, Clinton McFarland, as a matter of fact, Grace Baptist Church in, Stock, in Stockbridge. And um, Max said... Pastor McFarland said, any friend I call him Matt. Pastor McFarland said, he said, we come from a royal people. Our people were kings. We were the cradle of civilization of there in Africa. And then he starts talking about, um, but now we have been reprogrammed. Yes. He's, he said, so what we have seen has been white. He said, how do you take monkeys in the jungle and make the king of the jungle a white man named Tarzan. And then he said, he said, I'm just giving you real talk here. When you begin to look at what you have seen and how you've been programmed, can I just say it's worked? Because whenever you continue to show somebody something, that's the something that they begin to internalize and to value. And because African-Americans haven't been shown in positive light all the time, hey, look, wrong is wrong and right is right. But whenever there is the programming, and do believe me when I say that television and radio is about programming. 
Somebody mentioned over here, Grace, I got a question for you. Uh, somebody mentioned, um, no, it was you, Doc. He starts talking about the African-American community when desegregation. I used to hear my dad say that. He says the worst thing that ever happened to black folk was that we were integrated. My like, dad, what you, what, what you talking about? He said, he said before, you have to say that, yeah. economically dismantled. Economically dismantled is what it was. Yeah, okay, all right. So I said, Dad, why do you say that? He said, before, we at least had our own hotel. He said, at least, you know, and we're talking about the AU Center, um, Pascals, Busy B. Anybody from, anybody from the A? Yeah, you know, that, that was ours. That was like, that was equivalent to Harlem. You know, Ralph David Abernathy, you know, that, that was the heart of black America, Bronner Brothers. So now when we can go to Buckhead and buy a house because we use the N-word in music, our power disseminates and we stop respecting each other. All right, so now, that's a good point. Okay, thank you. Um, I got a question for you, and this isn't one of the ones that I prepped you to. So I gave, I gave all of our panelists, did not want them to feel as though they were going to be uh, side-swiped or being set up. My goodness, we've been doing this for that long? Okay, all right. Grace, is the N-word, as a woman, equivalent to the B-word? Well, um, I think they're both words that are used to to dismantle who you are, um, to dismantle your integrity. Um, and I think, but I think there is something um, about hearing voices that are not our own and understanding why people use those words. Um, well, specifically the N-word. And um, what I've heard is buyback, right? I'm gonna take yeah. that word that was used against me and I'm gonna use it. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna use it to empower me. Um, but it's the understanding as well that you're not in a silo. You're not by yourself in this world. So when we use it, in a way that is just with our communities, right? We have these words within the Hispanic community as well. Um, when we use it within our own communities, we don't realize that the eyes are still looking in, right? That the eyes are still watching what we're doing, right? Um, and I think that's when it becomes a problem, when um, the, the white kids at the party start saying the N-word, right? Um, when, when they start calling you that because you're friends now. Um, right. And it's, it's just not the same because we don't live in an isolated world. And I think as a woman, um, the B word, I think women have also bought back that word, right? In no. terms of saying like, girl, you my, right? Don't call oh, me that. Right? <laughs> I don't care how cool we are, don't you call me that word. Right. And I think, I think, um, and I think I'm a culprit to that. I think I've done that to, to be cool with my friends, right? To say like, um, to be, have a good time, right? And not realizing that, you know, life and death are in the tongue, right? right? And when you say that to your girl, you know, you're not saying you're a beautiful woman of God. And you say, girl, you my, you saying something different, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's, little words have a psychology to them. There's an economy of words, right? Um, we don't realize how each word you say has a price tag. Um, and it can cost you, it can give you value, or it can depreciate your value. So it's really important to do that. Um, but I think something that you were talking about here that I think I want to point out as well um, is the power of mutuality, the power of relationship. And the truth is that only 80% of white Americans have a person of color as a friend. Now that is... Oh, wow. Wait, slow down. Yes. Really? Yes. 8%? 80. 80. Oh, 80. Only 80% 80, 80 do not have a friend of color. And I know that because in my college where I went to, um, the students of color got together and said, One of the, this is when Sterling happened and um, a bunch of police brutality was rising up, right? And then within our community we were saying, what is happening? And why aren't the white kids talking about this? Why are we the only ones crying on the sidelines about what is happening? Um, and we came together in something called Come to the Table. And so I went to a Christian college and what we did, we had half minority students and half white students intentionally come together and read articles and read and talk about testimonies um, and talk about what that means. And I think that was essential to un for white people and people of color to understand each other. Because I can talk about Trump America all I want, but those are still people, right? 
And I think it's really hard for us, especially people of color, we get really uncomfortable because they're calling us names. Um, they're calling us, they're not even making us human in some way, shape, or form. Um, but God calls me to love them too. As much as that hurts, as much as that grinds my gears, I have to love that Trump America. And I think that looks like being a friend to Trump America. I think that means having courageous conversations with Trump America. Um, and that's not an easy task at all, but I'm called to do that because I have a God who is greater than the President of the United States. Here's, here, did you want to say something, Dr. Hughes? I did, just for a yeah. quick moment. Um, both of them said something interesting that I think connects across generations and, and, and would be helpful for us too, is that you mentioned the bystander effect. And you just mentioned the bystander effect, but different generations. And even today- Okay, unpack that. That means what? What that means is, is as, his, as he described, that population of people had the ability to just stand back and do nothing, knowing that there wouldn't be an impact in their lives. Mm -hmm. And the same description that she just shared about how her white Caucasian college colleagues, again, had the ability to just stand back not involve themselves in the active discussion or fight, if you will, and just allow for things to just unfold at the detriment of people of color. And so we do the same with our phones now, where we can literally watch something go just ridiculous in front of us, and, and we put the screen there to put the bystander effect in place. So how do we, as the church, begin to push people past the bystander effect. As a member of the body of Christ, I know that I can't be a bystander. I have to jump in. That's what the power of God inspires us to do. And so if I could connect that piece, that, that we have to push people past the point of being a bystander and invite them into relationship and understanding to be able to take effective action. Okay, so here's my personal experience. So I have a friend of another ethnicity and I tried to have a conversation with her. And it went, it, she went all around it. Like she, it, you could hear the tension in the, on the phone call. So I'm trying to reach towards her. I'm trying to have that courageous conversation. I thought it was a necessary one, um, but I could just feel the pushback. So I got an answer. please. <laughs> In, in, in Southeast Asia, all along the Pacific Rim, we know you don't ever make decisions about anything until you've had a bowl of noodles together. Right. You sit down together and you eat together. Say nothing. Just enjoy the company of each other over the, over the table and you eat together. Then the conversation can open up. And, you know, your point is really, really true. I, I, I'm a... Facebook snoop. So I, I go into my list of Facebook friends, and I look at the ones that I'm pretty sure voted MAGA all the way, and I go into their list of friends, and I start looking. And I said, huh, there is nobody on this list who's a person of color. I see you don't know what you're talking about. You have no connection to anybody who could give you any other opinion. And that's a big deal. That's but a huge deal. But it's not just white people. So, so look on your Facebook page. And, and one person doesn't count. Right. And I, and I think we all have one friend. Oh, 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 one second, Grace. And I think the algorithms of Facebook is further polarizing and programming. That's true. I mean, if, if, if. There was no collusion. If there was, if there was the hack, <laughs> I'm sorry. If there was the hack behind using Facebook for President Trump to become president or whatever, that, that, there is something they, they group and associate and say, okay, here are, all the, here are all the folk that would probably vote this way and that would vote this way. The only way to do it is to have conversation, is what he said. There, there, was, an, there was a situation at our kids' school and the black folk were ready to rise up. I mean, and 
they were going to protest, and Al Sharpton was on the way, and uh, I mean, like everything. he's the only man that can yeah. <laughs> deliver us. Everything. I found the most influential one in that group, and I'm just trying to be a friend. Now, that to me is kingdom. You got to be patient even when you've been hurt. And the only way you can be patient when you've been hurt is when you learn to forgive. I know y'all don't like me now, do you? Because a lot of times we don't want to let go of what has happened to us. And, and, and that is affecting our effectiveness as we bring the kingdom. Every time I show up to meet with my friend, I'm bringing the power of the kingdom of God. And it's taking a long time. But patience is the fruit of the spirit. Now the question becomes, how many of you all are going to go and befriend somebody that not, maybe not necessarily looks like you, but didn't vote like you? Mm. Or that doesn't agree with what you agree with? Mm -hmm. When are you going to have a bowl of noodles? Yeah, and I say, think Grace? something essential to that, in order to sympathize with someone, to understand what they're going through, you have to first humanize them, right? Um, not all black people, not all Latino people, not all white people, all, not all Asian people are the same. Um, I'm Puerto Rican, but I'm not the same as a Mexican. I'm telling you that right now, right? I am not the same as a Guatemalan. I'm not the same as a Honduran. I'm not the same, right? Just like I can't say you are the same as someone from New York City or you are not the same as maybe the person sitting right next to you. And so first we have to sympathize, um, to, we have to sympathize to then humanize and then to humanize someone, we need to be humble. And I think that is so essential, right? He tells us in Micah 6, 8, to do justice, love mercy, and last of all, walk humbly. And I think that requires you to sometimes sit down and have a conversation with someone that's gonna ask you a question that's gonna irk you a little bit. But if they're not having that conversation with you, then who are they talking about? Right. Who are they talking to? And they wanna ask you those questions, they're like, so why is it like this in your community? Or why is it like this? You could be a representation, an image, that could, under, that could really say that in a way that maybe they could understand that they would not otherwise if they were just watching TV or on Facebook or doing something of the like. If you got a question or comment, would you please